This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we discuss all things regarding the lore of Dragon Age. I'm Austin, also known as Teacup. And I'm Shelby, also known as SheCup. And we're here to guide you through the topics of Dragon Age and maybe tackle some questions that you have about the series. So, SheCup, what do we have today? Well, um, as we have been doing all throughout the season two, we've been talking about different factions um, throughout Thetis. So today we're focusing on some more Orlesian factions, and um, they are the Council of Heralds, the Bards of Orlais, and the Lords of Fortune. So those are three that we're talking about today. And then I'll keep our side character secret till the end. Ooh, a surprise. I guess you'll have to listen to the end to find out. All right, you ready to hit us with some fun facts? Yes, I am. And I think that I have, I do have fun facts about all of um, the three different groups. So first up, do you want to do Council of Heralds first or Bards first? You pick. Let's do Bards. So Bards of Orlais. When I say that, you are probably thinking the bards who play the game, right? Yeah. Okay, well, there are actually two kinds of bards um, in Dragon Age. First, there is the traditional songwriter, storyteller, performer, and just that. Think of Meriden in DAI's Herald Re- Herald's Rest. Um, But there is another more sinister type of bard, which we kind of have become to think of as uh, ubiquitous with bards just in in Thetis and Dragon Age generally. And these are the bards of Orlais. They are songwriters, storytellers, performers, but they also specialize in assassinations, sabotage, spying, and just general roguery. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going with it. Bards follow like an ancient Orlesian tradition. Um, And so they act, you know, as I said, as assassins and spies and all of this. Um, And they follow secretive pursuits in constant and sometimes petty struggles between nobles. Their their, uh, jobs usually do focus in on the nobility. And usually it's like nobles attacking other nobles. It's not usually like peasants hiring bards um, to attack nobles. Usually it's, it's just in the noble class. The bard of Orlais is a master manipulator. Um, they obviously know how to spin a good story, weave a good yarn. Like they know how to do all of those things and they use that to their benefit to manipulate you into not only like doing what they want you to do, but also they are using you like 
to get ahead. Um, and they may even kill you at the end of it too. And so all, all bards of Orle can inspire their allies or dishearten their foes through song and tale. And that was a little quote from um, the description from Dragon Age Origins for the bard specialization. So in Origins, I think is the only game you can become a bard in, or can you become a bard in DA2, Austin? Do you remember? No, the uh, barbs have the barb special bard bard specializations are duelist, uh, subterfuge, and shadow. Okay, so there is no bard in DA2. It's just the those are the rogue options. Correct. So yeah, DAO is the only game in which you can become a bard. Um, and when you do become a bard in Origins, you do become a bard of Orle. Like you may not have official membership in like their college or their group or whatever, but like that is how you are trained. You are trained, um, I think under Liliana. So you become a bard of Orle, whether or not you have official membership. Right. And I guess membership is a loose term. Yeah, that's probably fair. So let's move on into structure and history. So the bards, as you kind of probably already guessed, they do not have a structure. They are highly, highly individualistic and they're an intentionally disconnected group. Um, They don't really work together. That's not a thing that they do Uh, because if they did work with someone else, they would just be worried about being backstabbed the whole time, which uh, is is a pretty common theme throughout Liliana's song DLC. So, and then another thing that's interesting is that for all of the pretensions of Orle and the pretensions of the status of being a bard, right? The life of a bard is one that is pretty open to everyone. Um, for all that, like a bard's training makes them a spy it also makes them a storyteller that is receptive to the legends of all cultures and their preservation this means that skilled players of the game are welcomed whether they're human or elven or dwarven mage or mundane female or male whoever you are you are welcome to become a bard if if you're talented so it's very much a by merit kind of system which is so interesting for an orlesian system Mm-hmm. Yes, it's fascinating for an Orlesian system because it's the opposite of what you would think it, it would be. So let's get into the history a bit. Uh, supposedly, the Order of Bards was really created by Jashavis, who is often called the mother of Orlay. We've talked about her in other episodes, most notably our episode on Orlay. So if you would like to learn more about her, definitely go back and hit that hit up that episode. Um, because she is a very, very fascinating character, a minor character that we don't know much about and we've never met, um, but she is a very, very important character to the lore of Thetis. So go back and listen to that Orle episode and you'll know more about her. Um, but she is really the creator of the grand game. And so to have something as filled with intrigue and mystery and power as the game, you really have to have a force who's willing to back you up. And the Chevaliers cannot be that force due to their strict code of honor. So the bards kind of emerge from this place of need 
Yeah, and it makes sense if you're gonna like you're gonna have this game that's all about saying one thing and meaning another or deception and misdirection. You need a group of people that is willing to do that. And they're right, the Chevaliers are not that group of people. Right. Absolutely. So um, outside of Orlais, bards are less prominent, of course, because you're outside of Orlais, but they're no less dangerous. Um, they often travel wherever secrets have value. So in Ferelden, uh, they often played like festivals and fairs, and they would go to the courts of many bands and arles. And obviously they would be listening for secrets that could be used to sway the fiercely independent nobility throughout all of it. And they do that in other places throughout Thetis. Um, and outside of Orlais, I should note, most bards that you come across, if you go to a tavern and you meet a bard, they're not going to be a bard of Orlais. They're going to be just a regular bard who's not violent. Um, they're merely musicians, but that only makes the spies even more difficult to detect. So when you're in Orlais, it's, it's reversed. Bards of Orlais, the violent ones, are more, more common than your everyday storyteller bard. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so even though bards um, are renowned in Orlais, they're also viewed as something of a curiosity, especially in court. Um, but the nobles of Orlais, they welcome entertainers and performers, knowing and probably hoping that they are a bard as well. And most likely, most likely they will be a bard. So the reason why they look forward to this is not because they want violence or drama or whatever at their parties. It's because the thrill of outwitting a bard of Orlais is a notion that the Orlesian aristocracy cannot resist. To think of like getting one up on a bard of Orlais, they just cannot pass up that opportunity, which I think makes total sense for Orlesian nobles. So. Unfortunately, when whenever these nobles do realize that like a master bard has been among them, it's usually too late. They bards bards do usually tend to use music uh, to soothe hearts, but also to cloud minds to weave an emotional story that takes you out of the headspace to where you're able to analyze and think critically and try to deduce whether or not there's, a, you know, a master bard among you. And in combat, their abilities inspire allies and especially their ability to distract foes are really legendary. Um, and beyond their music, they are masters of dirty fighting, stealth, and of course, stealing. So how do you become a bard? Well, it's actually quite rigorous. And the bard masters often wring the sympathy and capacity for love from the individual who is being trained. This is very cruel, in my opinion, um, and also explains Liliana's struggle in Dragon Age Origins. But a composed and aloof demeanor is necessary for a bard to be able to perform their duties and sell their sympathies to the highest bidder. Of course, the quintessential bard may in fact question whether they are even capable of love rather than treachery, though this training does not always, um, you know, get rid of the individual's compassion but it does, it does usually make them question their capacity for love. And so I think if we look at 
the two people in Dragon Age who have, who we know of most closely and intimately, who have been bards or have had bardic training, we see this very clearly. In Liliana, first and foremost, she questions if she's able to love in Dragon Age Origins and in Dragon Age Inquisition. Although in Inquisition, she blames her struggles more on divine Justinia rather than the bard training, but it's all kind of wrapped up together in her story. And then secondly, if we look at Josephine, she was trained as a bard and she spent, you know, a few years, I think in Orlais living as a bard and she couldn't do it. She gave up on it. She gave up on the life because she realized that she killed a fellow bard that she knew and she'll tell you this um, once you get close to her. And so both of those examples, while very different examples, I think illustrate this principle very clearly. And it's worth noting that like Liliana never stops being a bard. Really? I mean, if you really think about it, she just becomes Justinia's bard. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Justinia uses her for that purpose. We find out that Justinia later regretted in life, but. Yes, but still. still. Um, yeah. It makes me wonder what she's doing at Chateau Hane. Liliana? Yeah. She's investigating the Kunari conspiracy. Hmm. We know that from the war. I think we talked about that in our uh, Liliana deep dive. Hmm. Well. I'll have to go you back forgot. And listen. I'll have to go back and listen. <laughs> All right. Well, to finish up this section on the bards, let's talk about a few known bards. And there's not actually a ton that we know of, um, but here are a few of them: Bastien, who is Vivian's lover; Briala, Empress Celine, Josephine Montillier, formerly Liliana, Lady Mantion, Marjolaine, and Philium, a bard exclamation point i will say that like bards are probably the closest representation of what the bard class in DD is supposed to be like yeah i see that especially with the whole um information about like how their song can soothe or soothe the ally or uh dishearten an enemy that's very much like that ability that i forget the name of inspiration bardic inspiration sure whatever uh-huh. I've never played a bard, so. Yeah. But no, it's just that thing about like, it's one of those stereotypes that like everyone assumes that bards, oh, they're the musical flirty types, but really their talents lead to deception, intimidation, sneak, sneaking, all kinds of stuff. Right. Well, do you have any more thoughts on the bards before we move on to our next one? I think that would be the faction that I joined. The bard. If I didn't join the Chantry. That's very interesting. Also, you would join the Chantry? Maybe. I'm judging hardcore. See, I don't think I would be like a high up in the Chantry. I think I just like serve a local like place and stay there for my entire life. I mean, yeah, that sounds fun. I would not want to do that, though. (laughs) Actually, I would want to do. I want to live on the farm in Redcliffe. That's what I want to do. With the horses? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on a little bit. So let's do the Lords of Fortune, just to mix it up a little bit. 
I wish I was a Lord of Fortune. Um, yeah, same, same. Just so by the, na- na- by the name alone. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get into it. So the Lords of Fortune, we don't have a ton of info about this because this is a new faction. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they uh, first came up in to Venture Nights, although there may be a uh, random codex that refers to them or throwaway line, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that it, it's to Venture Nights. But fun fact, the Lords of Fortune are a guild of treasure hunters who are based out of Ravane. They're very close to pirates, in my opinion. I think they also sound um, like the definition of a rogue in D&D, if we want to continue the D&D metaphor. But uh, they are specifically known for their colorful outfits, sashes, capes, belts, scarves, charms for wearing their treasure like on, on their bodies. And they also specialize in disguises. That's really important. They are very, very skilled with wearing a disguise. And this is just going to help everyone picture in their mind what this is. Okay. And it's just one name. Lando Calrissian. 100%. Yes, that is perfect. That is perfect. Um, and then I will also add, uh, I said that they like to wear their treasure but that uh, is generally reserved to the Lords of Fortune who have survived more than a year or two. They um, traditionally do not have a very long lifespan as a Lord of Fortune, which makes sense when you are a flamboyant, like attention-seeking, attention-getting person that also puts a target on your back. And they are based out of Ravane. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Makes sense. They come from the same place as Isabella. Mm-hmm. So, uh, usually this is the point where I would tell you about their structure and their history, but uh, we know little to nothing about either their structure or their history. So, I honestly, I think that we might see them in DA4. I think that's a very likely possibility, um, but we'll have to see. And I do have a couple things to tell us about involvement. So, the Lords of Fortune appear in three different short stories from Taventer Nights. Three is a lot to me. I think the Lords of Fortune, the Antivan Crows, and the Grey Wardens are the three factions that appear the most um, in those, in that uh, collection of short stories. So that gives us a pretty interesting potential direction that DA4 may head. But anyway, so Uh, The specific short stories that the Lords of Fortune appear in are Genitivi Dies in the End, Harold Had the Plan, and Luck in the Gardens. I loved Luck in the Gardens. That was one of um, my more favorite. It was creepy, but also a lot of like, just like vindication. So I really liked that one. I would recommend you to read that one for sure. Um, and then interestingly, I told you that Lords of Fortune were treasure hunters, right? Well, in none of these short stories are the Lords of Fortune hunting for treasure specifically. They are killing creatures, hunting for ancient ruins, attempting to retrieve stolen amulets, and stuff like that. So to me, 
to me, they seem a little bit less like treasure hunters and a little bit more like bounty hunters. Yeah. Or they're just going where the coin is. Yeah. And that's 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 a very good possibility as well. So we do know of four Lords of Fortune and they are Harold, Hollix, Barv and Mateo. I would like to see Hollix in DA4. Yeah. They all appear in Venture Nights. Yes. And that's about all we know about the Lords of Fortune. They're definitely an interesting group, a new group, like I said, uh, but very, very interesting. All right. Well, let's, I think this is a good time for our break. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm listening. Ah, you've returned. A letter arrived for you. All right. Well, welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things that don't have to do with the lore of Dragon Age. Just everything going on with the podcast. We take this time to thank our patrons, read some reviews. And so I want to take this time to read out our first five patrons. We read them out every um, show and so that is Genesis, Lisa M, uh, Fletcher M, Derek B, and Zuba. So thank yes. you for your support, and we really appreciate it. We absolutely do, and um, also make sure you become one of our patrons if you're interested at tier three, because we are this month in May. We are going to start doing patron shows so that means you'll get to come on the show with us if you are a patron at tier three or higher so if you're interested in that opportunity hop on it and join our patreon yes and if you cannot support us financially we totally understand we still love that you give us a listen and you are one of the reasons that we do this podcast um but there is another way to support us and that is by leaving us a review on apple with some words or rating us on spotify uh, if you do leave a review on Apple, we will read it out on a future episode of the show. You do not need to listen to the podcast on either Apple or Spotify to rate and review. You just need to have an account there. So you can, even if you don't listen to us on Apple or Spotify, you can still go into those apps with an account and leave us a review. And that just really helps, you know, boost the show. It helps let other new listeners know that, hey, this show is a, of good quality and these are what people like about it um so we do have a new review to read today um you want to go we ahead do. and read yeah i've got it ready all right okay so this five-star review is from nerd dad and nerd dad says this so much fun lore for dragon age I hadn't realized these games were so deeply written with such cool lore. Time for another playthrough of all the games. Great work, Shelby and Austin. Thank you, Nerd Dad. We're super thankful that you wrote us that awesome review. Yes, thank you. And I feel like we should put a disclaimer now at the podcast to warning, this may cause you to play Dragon Age again. Um, Definitely. <laughs> 
All right. Do you have anything else to share? Yes, we do. Uh, so I want to take this time to remind you that we're still running our Show Us Your Heroes, Hawks, and Heralds. Uh, you can do that by either reaching to, out to us on Twitter, at our email at dalorecast at gmail.com, or you can join our personal Discord, The Cups Podcasting, and more. Uh, the link is in the description, and you can share them there. And um, We just want to know all about your protagonists for each game, so your heroes, your hawks, and your heralds. So if you really love your protagonist and you want to show them off send them to us and we will read their story and their decisions out here on the show and so we do have one to read today yes we do and this one comes from Hasselhoff we read their review I think last week so or maybe two weeks ago so Hasselhoff gives us their canon hero of Ferelden Samuel Amell so Hasselhoff's hero of Ferelden. Um, Samuel came to the Ferelden circle of Magi at an early age. He was young, was always a curious student, and wanted to understand the deep secrets of magic and the Fade. After his harrowing, he eagerly joined the Grey Wardens, hoping to find more magic outside of the circle. Though his discovery of his friend Jowen using blood magic greatly impacted him and his decisions on his journeys. During the course of his travels, Samuel met many interesting individuals. In Lothering, Samuel was hoping to find some distant family, but he was unable to do so. Instead, he found Sten and Liliana and took them on his mission. Samuel then traveled to Redcliffe to get aid from the Arl. To cure Connor of his demon possession, Samuel returned to the circle of Magi to find it in a state of siege. Samuel assisted the mages with the cleansing of the towers, taking Wynne along with him on his adventure. On the return trip to Redcliffe, Samuel encountered a golem by the name of Shale and brought Shale along. Afterwards, he returned to Redcliffe and had Jowen enter the Fade in a hope to redeem his friends. On his way to Dinnerum to find Brother Genetivi, Samuel stopped in the Brazilian forest to recruit the Dalish elves. Samuel was, was able to broker peace between the werewolves and the Dalish clan. So after a short visit to Dinnerum, Samuel's company traveled all the way to Orzammar, foiling an assassination attempt on the road and taking Zevran Ariani along. In Orzammar, Samuel supported Lord Haramont, giving the crown forged by Caradin to the newly crowned King of Orzmar, Haramont himself. As the party was leaving, Ogren asked to join the party and he was accepted, but mostly as a mascot. Traveling south, Samuel and his company came across the town of Haven in search of Brother Genetivi. After killing the High Dragon, Samuel took some of the sacred ashes and returned to Redcliffe. Once in Dinnerum, Samuel was able to find sufficient evidence for the landsmeet. Surviving a second assassination attempt with the assistance of Zevran solidifying, solidified their friendship. Over the course of his adventures, Samuel grew to love Morgan, even having her teach him how to become a shapeshifter. At the end of the landsmeet, Samuel convinced Alistair to rule alongside Anora. And after a night of passion with Morrigan, Samuel went to fight the archdemon, claiming the killing blow. And that is Hasselhoff's hero of Ferelden. Thank you so much for sharing him with us. Yes, thank you. Quite the adventure Samuel Mel had. 
I wonder if like you have an Amel hero of Ferelden, if they ever meet with Hawk and like they try to say like it's like a competition, like Hawk's like, hey, like I'm the champion of Kirkwall. And then the hero of Ferelden's like, I stopped a blight. Elden. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. would be fun. I would pay to see that. <laughs> but anyway, I think do we have anything else for the middle of the show? I think that's all we got. That was a lot. All right. Well, let's get back into it. My friend. You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes. Swooping is bad. Yeah. This is gonna be fun. Let's do it. So we got one more Mm -hmm. group to talk. And this is the Council of Heralds. And this is something very random. Like, I had not planned to include this. And then they just kept popping up everywhere. Um, and they're actually an, a supremely important group in Orle. Um, so let's get into it. So the Council of Heralds is a group in Orle. And they are the deciders of all issues of nobility and titles in Orle. So if there is an issue that arises, whether it is a lineage issue or a um, any kind of issue that deals with your nobility and your title, the Council of Heralds makes the decision on it. That's a big deal. It is a huge deal. Huge deal. I think it's hard for like, especially those of us with American like backgrounds to understand like what a big deal that is because nobility is not really a part of our culture. Um, it's not something that like is we grew up with or ingrained with, but I mean, these to prove a noble lineage in some of these Europe in the European countries or other countries with nobility is a big deal. You have to have substantial documentation and proof and they would be very, very high ranking like officials in the Orlesian government. Right. And it's not, Right. Absolutely. And it's not just like issues of lineage. It's all issues regarding to nobility. So any quite like everything. So, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but we primarily see their importance in this feud between Celine and Gaspard because they are fighting over the Orlesian throne. So the council of heralds plays a huge role in that. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but Let's keep going for now. So Emperor Draken I, very charismatic, very classic, very iconic leader, right? Like he is the quintessential Orlesian leader. He's the most important one they've had. He's the one that really founded the empire as we have it today, at least. He's also the one that founded the Chantry. He banned all titles in Orlais other than Emperor and Lord and Lady. Obviously, given what we know of Orlesian culture, this didn't fly. Um, it didn't work out all that well. And by his time, Orlesian culture was well enough established that the people just were not going to give up that much of their history and their heritage, especially without a fight. And that's really saying something since he was such a beloved leader. So after Emperor Draken dies, the next emperor, Emperor Reveal, he had a habit of handing out new titles to his supporters. This clearly makes the situation worse. Um, 
So he didn't necessarily like reverse what Draken had done. He just kind of gave out titles to the people he wanted to. So you have a lot of people whose titles were revoked, who are pissed off. And then you have a bunch of people who don't really deserve titles that just have them because they're friends of the emperor. And that's a, that's a nasty situation that you've gotten yourself into. So Emperor Judaical I inherited this political turmoil from Reveal, his father. Um, and all of this, all of these issues had already cost the life of Judaical's brother, Emperor Etienne II. So Judaical is the one who creates the Council of Heralds. And he does this in an attempt to win over the nobles of his court. The council then becomes the final arbiter over all disputes involving titles, including that of the emperor or empress. What a power move. Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that I think has more, much more ramifications later throughout history than Judaical was probably imagining it would. I think he does this to solve this like urgent problem he has of, noble infighting and destroying their country and it's a good idea at the time and I, i'm not necessarily saying that it's in you know bad because i think it is a good check on um their system but they have a lot of power like a, a lot of power so um my last little fun fact about this group is that membership to the council tends to be hereditary and it passes from noble to noble among their families, which also just like verifies and solidifies the power that these families have. So the structure of this group, they are a group comprised of seven people. These seven people, they're all equal. They all have equal standing and they belong to the seven most powerful and the seven oldest noble families in Orlais, as you can imagine. It's so interesting because like, I think that like when Judica creates this, it's a good idea. I think that mm -hmm. having a separate body that can be the final say on these issues can and probably did prevent a lot of noble infighting and nobles raising up their own you know armies and going against each other it probably did prevent to have like a system that people could go through right i think his the mistake is this making it only from the seven oldest and most powerful noble families they mm -hmm. it should have been like some kind of appointing system that another check could be like okay yes the council of heralds decides this but the reigning emperor or empress appoints them or even that that membership rotates among all the noble families in Orlais. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would have given the group a little more power and a little more respect. I think they are highly respected, but I mean, Vivian is really the only one who says to the inquisitor, Hey, these people should be some people that you talk to, to like make yourself known and get their opinion on these things, on this I think issue. I think Josephine mentions them as well. Okay. But yeah, but, I mean, like, they're not, it's like you said, if you're not really paying attention and you don't do Vivian's side quest, you could very well play through the game and not even know who the Council of Heralds are. Or if you're not paying attention in the Winter Palace, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into the history a little bit. And this is what we're fixing to talk about is their, like, 
most important thing they've ever done. Verified. So in 919 Dragon, the Emperor of Orlais, Emperor Florian, dies without naming an heir. So, of course, the Council of Heralds was called upon to choose who would inherit the throne. The choice, as we know, was between Celine Valmont and Gaspard de Chalon. Though Gaspard was the eldest of Emperor Judaical I's surviving grandchildren, and Celine was the youngest, they gave the throne to Celine. Gaspard attributes this, of course, to having the right last name. So the emperors go, Emperor Judaical, and then Emperor, Emperor Florian. Florian doesn't have children. So both Gaspard and Celine are grandchildren of Judaical, which means that they are nieces and nephews to Florian, right? Yes, I believe so. Because they're cousins themselves. Yeah, they're cousins. And it makes sense because, you know, Gaspard's sister is Florian, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay, so the Council of Heralds, they're the ones that decide that that decide Celine is going to be the Empress. And this is like the biggest thing they've ever done. They decided they chose who the emperor or empress was going to be of Orlais. That is a big deal. It's a really big deal. So where else can we meet the council of heralds? What else can we do with them? Like we've alluded to, they are present during the peace talks of the winter palace or the quest in dragon age inquisition known as wicked eyes, wicked hearts. Your inquisitor can talk to several members of the Council of Heralds, notably Marquise Mantillon and Duke Germain de Chalon. Um, and there's a whole little quest, one of the, the side missions where you have to listen for gossip. You can listen and overhear several of them. And there's multiple of those little side quests that you can do for approval and, and whatnot. Um, and then additionally, Vivian's lover, Duke Bastien de Gislaine, was head of the Council of Heralds before his death. So he dies during Inquisition. And when he dies, his son, Laurent, takes his position on the Council of Heralds. Can you do Vivian's quest before uh, Wicked Eyes, Wicked Hearts? I think so. So he would have already died before the Winter Palace. I don't think. Because you can't meet all of the members of them. Like you can't meet them all at the Winter Palace. You can only meet a few of them. They're not all there. Right. I was just curious if that quest, because a lot of the companion side quests have a trigger that you have to complete either, like you either have to complete Adamant Fortress or Wicked Eyes, Wicked Hearts or both before they'll trigger. Like yeah, Black, Black Walls know. is like that. You cannot do, you cannot get to the point where he reveals his identity until you've done both those quests right and like i said i'm not for sure for vivian um i'm t- i just i've already told you what i know about it <laughs> so we do know as of 940 to 942 dragon we know all of the seven members um this may have changed by the time of da4 But this is the latest information that we know of. So the members of the Council of Heralds, as we know currently, are Marquise Mantillon, 
Duke Cyril de Montfort, who's an important character in the books, Marquise Etienne de Chevon, Comte Lothair Ducey, Comtesse Solange Montbelliard, Duke Laurent de Guislaine, and Duke Germain de Chalon. Lots of French names. Yes. I mean, Celine's, Celine's last name is the only one not present in there, if you're thinking of the right ones. Yeah, but that's like her last name, Balmont, is like that's the emperor last name. Right. It's like having the last name Windsor. Right. Which is what which is what Gaspard means when he says he didn't have the right last name. All right. It's a very interesting group and I think a very powerful one that isn't really foremost like front and foremost in the game, but I mean, the power to appoint you're basically your head of state is a big deal in like a governmental body. Oh yeah, and I think that they are very intentionally more of a behind the scenes kind of group they're not trying to be front and center yeah it makes sense um and it's very much a kind of thing of like there it's almost like they're only there when they're needed but otherwise they like fade they're just living their lives into it and this is another reason why i think it probably would have been a better idea to have them rotate beyond among the noble houses because then it would be this huge honor to serve on the Council of Heralds. And it would give more weight and power to the group. That's so true. They would be so, so much more respected in society too. Not that they're not, but like, it would just be seen as like so much more prestigious, you know? Oh, and it would be like something that noble families aspire to. And like, (laughs) it might even give something of like all these minor nobles who, you know, are the second son of the cousin of the head of the house you know yeah we give them what like an opportunity to do something other than join the chevaliers or become a bard true well are we ready to move into our side character i am okay so our side character for today is kind of an obscure one um we've had some like major super popular well-known side characters lately so i thought i would come back to a more random one but today's side character is a person who is named catriel and she appears primarily in the stolen throne novel so austin teacup are you familiar with catriel at all only from what you've told me Okay, so the answer is no. <laughs> yes. Um, I do know that she's in the Stolen Throne. I do know well, that she... Well, I just she... said that, so yeah. of course you know. And I know that she causes a lot of problems between Merrick and Loghain. That is very much accurate, so let's get into it. So Catriel is an Orlesian bard. I thought uh, this was a good tie-in to our topic for today um and she is actually a very talented bard of orlay um beyond she's beyond just like your regular everyday orlesian bard um and she does not appear directly in any of the games although there are a few references to her in dragon age 2 and we will get there catriel does first appear in the stolen throne novel And she does later briefly appear in the Calling novel. She is an elf with curly blonde hair and green eyes. And she is also the lover of Merrick Theron. While he is Prince Merrick. 
So before we get into Catriel's story and character, I wanted to give a brief overview of the plot of The Stolen Throne because her story is really tied up with the plot of this book um, and the narrative of the book. So I really loved it as a a novel and it gave me a different perspective into Loghain and Ferelden's war with Orle. So I do really recommend reading it especially if that era of lore is something that you're interested in as well. But there will be some major spoilers for the book throughout the rest of this episode. So if that's something you care about and you haven't read the book yet, just go ahead and turn off the rest of this episode and come back to it when you've read the book. So here's my brief overview. The Stolen Throne opens in an occupied Ferelden in the middle of their war with Orlais. The future King Merrick, currently Prince Merrick, narrowly escapes assassination and is assisted by a young Loghain. They have some adventures, but the bulk of the book tracks the war and the major battles of it. Loghain, Merrick, and Rowan Garen, older sister to Tegan and Eamon Garen, all become very close friends. Rowan and Merrick were betrothed to one another as children but Rowan and Loghain fall in love with one another. Merrick falls in love with an elf named Catriel. Eventually, the war is won, and Merrick becomes king, marrying Rowan and having Caelan and the rest we know of from Dragon Age Origins. So that's the basic plot. I left out the stuff about Catriel because we're, we're going to get to it right now. So what's your comment? My comment was King Merrick, the original elf simp that is so true i mean same bro no judgment but yeah homie is a simp for elves like first catriel and then fiona i mean come on so what happens to catriel that's the big question um but let's go back to the beginning of what we know about her in her story catriel is hired as a bard by a mage named severin Severin was an advisor to the Orlesian puppet king in Ferelden. This king was named King Megrin, and everyone hated him, hated his guts. So Catriel is hired by Severin, and her goal was to seduce Prince Merrick and betray him, securing Orle's position in Ferelden indefinitely. So that's her goal, and that's what she sets out to do. But along the way, she finds herself becoming close to Prince Merrick during this time. And she develops real feelings for him and even falls in love with him. She did not want to betray him and his army at the battle of West Hill. But she also knew that she as a bard of Orlais was duty bound. So she did betray the Ferelden army and she caused a very significant defeat for the Ferelden rebels. However, she did not directly betray Merrick, which would have really led to his death. So she saves him. She decides to switch sides and rescue Merrick. And he definitely would have died if it wasn't for her help here at the end. And honestly, Loghain and Rowan probably would have also died. But she very much sees this as, okay, she's done her duty to the job she was contracted to do because she's betrayed the army. So now that that is fulfilled, she can now go and save Merrick. That's her line of thinking. That's her logic. Clearly it's flawed, but that's what that's where she's coming from. So later on in the novel, during their journey into the Deep Roads, because every Dragon Age story has to go to the Deep Roads. 
Catriel tries to reveal her true identity to Merrick, but he brushes her off. And he insists that her past doesn't matter due to her courageous actions in the battle because she had saved them. So she doesn't tell him the full truth, basically because he says it doesn't matter to him. But Rowan and Logan, however, are deeply, deeply suspicious of her, which draws them two together, closer together as well. And I think part of this for Rowan is like, you know, they're betrayed, they're betrothed to one another. Um, And they have been since they were children and they always knew that they would get married. So for Rowan, there is some jealousy there, but also neither of them really are in love with each other. They don't really want to get married, but they both are like, yeah, this is what we have to do. So it's a very complex emotion there. Um, It's not just like, oh, the classic like love triangle jealousy. It's much more complicated than that. Definitely. So later on in the book, Catriel goes back to Severin, the mage who hired her. And well, Logan and Rowan were still suspicious of her. So they follow her and they find out that she entered the royal palace. Catriel did know that she was followed, but decided to go back to Merrick and confront him with the truth, trusting his judgment with her life. And she wanted to come clean. She was so filled with regret for betraying him and the Ferelden rebels that she was willing to die for her actions, especially since she had, in fact, fallen in love with Merrick. To prove her love for him, Catriel left an envelope waiting to be found by Merrick, explaining all of her regrets and and describing exactly how to defeat Severin. However, before Merrick is able to read the contents of the envelope, he is confronted by Logan. Loghain tells him that Catriel has betrayed them and is working with Severin. Loghain did not tell Merrick that she had left Severin's service. So in a blind rage, Merrick kills Catriel. After the act is done, he is full of regret about killing her and bitterness toward Loghain. And he regrets this for the rest of his life. And I do believe that he carries this bitterness toward Loghain for the rest of his life. So knowing this, it makes it a little bit make more sense that Loghain and Merrick, who are supposed to be these best friends, heroes of the war, right? Merrick is in Denerim where the palace is. And Loghain is sent off to be the Terran of Gwaran in the far southeastern corner of Ferelden. They're very far away from one another. And I think that this makes it make more sense. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, And of course, like this on top of Loghain's history, his hate of Orlay and his entire convincing that you cannot partner with Orle. You cannot do anything. You can't even talk to them, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. The thing that like really like to me doesn't make sense. And I think that this is probably just the fact that the stolen, well, the stolen throne came out before origins, correct? Yeah. It's like a prequel to origins. They came out around the same time. Okay. It just doesn't make sense to me that like, I could get how Logan could do that to Merrick's son. But I, I don't 
really understand how he could be so blinded by hate that he would do it to Rowan's son. <sighs> yeah, that's fair. That's a very fair comment. Um, and I think that that really just speaks to how far into paranoia Logan has fallen. And I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, you know, like therapy doesn't exist in this time period. And I don't want to spoil the entire book, but there's a lot more that Logan suffers through under the hands of the Orlesians. And also because he's protecting Merrick, some really horrific things that the Orlesians do to him and to his family. And he definitely has PTSD from that. Like, I'm just going to verify it, like say it, he has PTSD. And so it makes sense that that would be like his stance on Orle. Um, I think anyone who suffered under a, an occupation from another country is going to hate that invading country. It's just kind of natural human reactions. So I think that that makes Logan's character make more sense for sure in Origins, but he just takes it to such a crazy extreme. And I think it, it probably is like a PTSD moment, especially when he discovers that Kaylin is in correspondence with Celine. I think it just goes back to like, because they always say that, you know, Kaylin and Alistair actually do look like Merrick. And so I'm sure that Logan just sees, oh, here is, here is the king again conspiring with these Orlesians again. And they're the reason that our relationship was strained. They're the reason for all my suffering. I'm not going to let that happen again. And I'm not going to let that happen to my daughter. That might be a more motivating thing there. Yes, 100%. 100%. So I have a few more things to say about Catriel, though. So in The Calling, which is also a story about Merrick, he has a dream that he's with Catriel and she has become his queen of Ferelden. Ultimately, uh, they're in the Fade and she is a demon slash spirit of some kind. So it's not the real Catriel. And then in Dragon Age 2, with the Rogue Pack DLC, there are two unique Orlesian axes. One is named Bard's Honor and the other one is named Fiona. Interesting. Both of these axes are references to the two elven women that Merrick loved. Bard's Honor contains an interesting note from Anora Theron, and here's what it says. It's kind of long, so bear with me. I found the axe among Kaylin's belongings, wrapped in damask cloth, and initially I thought it might be another gift from that Orlesian harlot. It was a pretty enough thing, and the markings on the blade certainly seemed imperial. I even went so far as to confront Kalen with it, and do you know what he said? The axe was of personal importance to his father. So why wasn't it buried with his ashes, I asked? Because my mother wouldn't have approved. I wondered if he was lying, but Kalen is terrible at it. I did some digging, and are you aware that there was an elven woman seen in Merrick's company shortly before the Battle of the River Dane? There was a rumor, I understand, that they were lovers and that she was a bard. Was Merrick being blackmailed? I wonder if this has anything to do with that mysterious bequeathment to those elven families in Orlais. 
Of course, I had Kaylin dispose of the axe immediately. Written in 927 Dragon. Thanks, Honora. <laughs> I cannot stand her. Like, at first I was like, okay, she's fine. She's like mid. I don't care about her. No opinion whatsoever. And then I read this and I was like, okay, so homegirl was jealous. Jealous of Kaylin talking to Celine, which we know from other codex entries that Celine did want to potentially marry, like seek a marriage with Kaylin um, before he married Anora. But like, come on, girl. That would that's a terrible political move because <laughs> she, I mean Celine might get the nobles of Orlais on board with that, but the landsmeet of Ferelden after the occupation, no. <laughs> No, no, absolutely. Immediately, no. Immediately, no. Yeah, it's not happening. Okay, so I also brought a couple of quotes from Catriel, and I thought that I would read them. Here's the first one. If my time as a bard has taught me anything, it is that men with power can still be approached. The more power they believe they have, the more vulnerable they are. Hmm accurate (laughs) moving on the next one is this i'm just an elf my lord your people most of them do not see us they look but they do not see my mother was a maid to a human man her entire life and he never once called her by her name and then the last one she's talking about the castless dwarves and says this Every society has its lowest of the low. Do you think it would be so different in human society? Do you think anyone would go out of their way to ensure that elves in the alienage were safe if a crisis came to the city? And as we know, they do not care. No, they do not. The crisis does come. I think Catriel is definitely wise beyond her years. Um, And she tries really hard to make things right, but it just doesn't work in her favor. It's a classic like fantasy novel trope of like the once intended betrayer who is swayed to the side, but then their betrayal is revealed and life doesn't work out that way. Yeah, that happens a lot. So you have anything else about Catriel? Nope, that's all I got unless you have other thoughts about Catriel or the three groups we've talked about. I think we've exhausted the topic. Um, If anything, you're just a case to read The Stolen Throne. And David Gator, we will take our check now. Thank you. Stop. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at DALorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ariel. And we're the hosts of the Legend of Zelda Lorecast, a podcast about all things Legend of Zelda, from Errol to Zora. And all the fun things in between. If you're ready to dive deep and learn more about the Legend of Zelda lore and everything surrounding it, come join us on Legend of Zelda Lorecast. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon.